It's good to be with you again and see you all out this morning. I suspect Lewis is off on another assignment, but I wanted to comment that I thought he did a wonderful job yesterday laying a foundation for the rest of us to spring off of. And I was particularly taken by his closing comments because they were paralleling my opening comments, but I'm going to go ahead and reinforce what he said. But he was talking about singleness and how there are so many exceptional people that are single. As I was preparing for this class, it struck me that of the people I'm being asked to instruct this week, probably 50% of them are single. Now that number is a little bit skewed because I have the uh, high school and the uh, middle school kids. But even in the adults that we have left here, my guess is that maybe 20-25% of the people I'm looking at now are single. And it's easy to think that almost everyone is married. It's easy to think almost everyone has a wonderful marriage. I hope if you're married, you have a wonderful marriage. But I want us to emphasize, as Lewis did, that singleness is not a second-class position. Nor is it a matter of what others might say. I hope you do not hear this week. You may. But I hope you do not hear these words. You can only be truly complete if you're married. Because I believe that's an unbiblical statement. I think that says that Paul is lying to us in 1 Corinthians. And I think that says that Jesus was not complete. And probably some of the apostles weren't complete. There is something worse than singleness, and that's being married and wish you weren't. King Ahab would have been better off without Jezebel. Abigail might have been better off without Nadab. Samson might have been better off without his wife. Sometimes it is simply better. It's certainly better than being the wrong person or married to the wrong person. But if you are single through having lost your mate and having not found a mate or having chosen that maybe that's not for you and you're strong enough to endure that, I hope there's something in principle from all of the lessons that are presented here this week that will benefit you and not simply directed toward those who are married. With that, I'm going to now go into my assignment. And my title that I was given was Reasonable Expectations. And implied in that title is there must be unreasonable expectations or we wouldn't need to have the adjective reasonable. I don't know how many times I have taught at this camp out, but I will tell you, they always give us a little syllabus of things they want us to cover. This is the first time I've ever received a syllabus for the camp out with no scriptures. Usually you get a half a dozen scriptures to kind of put them on the, on the right track. And the closing statement is, we don't expect there will be a chapter and verse for a lot of the material we're asking you to cover, but we're comfortable and confident that your advice will be scripturally principled. Well, we'll see. That's my prayer, but we will see. But what I'm really being asked to talk about, or we're being asked to discuss, and I hope this is somewhat of a discussion, are the lasting dangers in allowing our culture to affect our early sexual and relational expectations. 
It's one thing to be settled on a topic, it's another thing just not to talk about it. And so I'm, I was encouraged to not mince any words, although I probably will in, the, in, the, in an attempt to be uh, tactful as we go through this. But the expectations we have in marriage that sometimes aren't met. Sometimes they're realistic expectations that should be met, and oftentimes we enter marriage with unrealistic expectations that we think ought to be met, but really shouldn't be met. Areas of money, areas of intimacy, areas of raising our children, areas of communicating within the family, and we'll go through several of those and additional ones as I go through, through uh, the lesson that I've been given. Sometimes when a topic is a little uncomfortable, we rely on a little bit of humor to break the ice, and that's not necessarily what we want to spend a lot of time on. But I am reminded of a little boy, he was about six years old, and on a particular weekend, they went to a wedding Saturday night, and then they went to church on Sunday morning. Well, going to church on Sunday morning was pretty common for this family. Weddings aren't as common, maybe one or two a year. And the parents were just interested in what this little boy picked up from these two events. Well, on Sunday morning, the person that had the sermon talked about the crucifixion and how Jesus hung on the cross. So he was able to tell them that that's what the sermon was about, and the parents were really, really happy that he had absorbed that. Then they asked him, what did you get out of the wedding? And then the little boy got a little confused. He had to stop and he thought. And he said, I think what I heard them say is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. (laughs) I hope that's not necessarily where we're starting from. But I think there is a little bit of truth to that. You would be an exceptionally wise person if you knew exactly what you were getting into when you said, I do. I hope you had Christian principles that led you to a reasoned expectation and a reasoned decision but I don't know how you can actually completely know what you're getting into until you've gotten into it and even if you've been married 40, 50, 60 years you're probably still learning a little bit about it you know we spend maybe the first 18 years of our lives being provided for and then we move into adulthood and marriage and expect the same thing to happen We've traded our parents for a mate. And sometimes we expect our mate to provide for us, maybe as thoroughly as our parents did. And that may not be a realistic expectation. But all of us have had expectations. I wrote down here, remember when you were young, but that may apply to us as we get a little older. You get a birthday card. You ever shaken a birthday card? Well, there's got to be money in here somewhere. There's got to be a gift card in here, and you're waiting for it to fall out. Now you can just look at the return address, and you know there's nothing in it based on who sent it to you. But that's an expectation. It's a natural expectation. We all have them. Some of them are fair and realistic. Some of them are unrealistic and unfair. Some of them are selfish. Some of them are serving. It's not a matter of do we have expectations, in my opinion. It's a matter of how we deal with those expectations. 
I'm going to present some material here. I better take my watch off so that time doesn't totally get away from me, but I will be pausing, and they asked me to deal with about 10 areas of expectations. Whether I get started on that the first hour or after the break, time will we'll see. But I think expectations are often good in many ways. You need them in the business world. You need them in any project. And you need them in any relationship. And you have them. And none is more true than in the relationship of marriage. Whether you realized it or not, most of you men expected the lady that you married to be a good mother and a good wife. I would call that a reasonable expectation. And they expected you to be a good husband, a good father, and a good provider. And that's a reasonable expectation. But maybe some of our expectations weren't as realistic. Maybe you entered into marriage thinking she would be beautiful forever. And now you have to rely on inside beauty more than outside beauty. Maybe you ladies entered into the expectation that he, would always, that he was always going to provide for you. Reasonable expectation, but maybe illness or unforeseen job issues have caused that to be a difficult thing for him to do. Maybe you as a husband expected that she would always wake up smiling with a sparkle in her eye. Maybe you as ladies entered your marriage with the expectation he will never forget to put the toilet seat down. Whatever you had, they haven't all been met. Some of them are serious and some of them are not as serious. In Ephesians chapter 5 verse 22 it says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the Lord. And then three verses later, he says, Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Sometimes husbands overly focus on verse 22 and wives overly focus on verse 25. Both are true. But sometimes our prayers as we go through our marriage life change. They move from, Lord, help me be the husband or wife that I am to be, to, Lord, please change my wife or husband to be the wife and husband they ought to be. Married individuals do act differently than when they were single. When you get married, one stressor has been removed. Maybe more than one, but one stressor has been removed. People will quit asking you, are you ever going to get married? But you find that's quickly replaced with other stressors. Are you ever going to have children? Are you ever going to have grandchildren? And just as a side comment, we need to be very careful about those types of questions. We can be very thoughtless and very hurtful with those questions. Many of you, maybe almost all of you have been asked some of those questions. Maybe some of you have asked some of those questions. The best response I ever heard to someone who was asked that question, I don't know if it was original with them, they simply said, I'll forgive you for asking if you'll forgive me for not answering. And I think that's an appropriate response. But marriage does become a vast melding pot of conflicting expectations. Some are externally generated, many of them are externally generated. And that often makes challenges that make it hard to sort out a proper path of a couple. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, it says, Be not unequally yoked together. 
I think that's a passage that we often try to rationalize our way through. But as I get older, I think that passage is clearer and clearer and clearer to me. A marriage that begins with common values and common goals is far ahead. Paul, and I don't know if he did this with tongue-in-cheek or with a little bit of humor, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 28, when he's talking about marriage and virginity, he's talking about a marriage couple, and he says in verse 28, Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh. I've often thought that might be a good thing for us to put on the back of a car as it's driving away from a marriage ceremony. Just reminding ourselves that there will be trouble in the flesh. Forming the anvil over which a relationship will break over time. Oh, they may stay together, not believing in divorce or the shame of thinking they have failed. When that occurs, we have what's commonly called the couple that's living together separately. I hope I haven't described you, but I believe there are couples that live together separately. And when unaddressed expectations or issues are not resolved, you find yourself maybe living together separately. You don't want to publicly admit that there's been a failure or a break, but you're not the one flesh, you're not the one being, you're not the intimate couple, and I don't mean that necessarily physically, just the intimacy that marriage should have. You find yourself getting increasingly irritated that, their that your expectations are not being met. It's become sometimes impossible, it seems, to do things together without descending into an argument. But rather than fix it, we just live together separately. But together or not, the relationship is damaged, even broken. Relational death from stress, unhappiness. Marriage based on the expectations of society, the expectations of in-laws, and that's another one that I'm supposed to address a little bit later. Or anybody else, more than what will work for that particular couple and guidance from the scriptures. And that is not what we want. The reality of expectations is we usually don't realize we have them until they're not met. You just kind of go through and you don't realize you've got expectations until something just doesn't feel right. Something's not being met. They're not doing what you expected them to do. Well, you're probably not doing what they expected you to do. And that is certainly not limited to newlyweds. In fact, many couples discover and even develop new expectations throughout their years together. And while some new expectations may develop over time, there are some that are common that, that I think all couples need to address in some way. I've listed 12 common marriage expectations, and these were largely taken from the assignment that I was given. Maybe one or two of them I have added. But during our time together, I hope to go back and at least spend a little bit of time on each one of these. Not right now, I'm just going to give them to you, and then we'll work our way back. Your expectations regarding money. In almost every marriage, or many marriages, there's a spender and a saver. And there has to be a meeting of those expectations. The expectations of in-laws, extended family, how much time will we spend with them? How much time will be our own family together? 
How are we going to raise our kids? Different styles, different activities. What holidays are we going to celebrate? What holidays are we not going to celebrate? What chores will we have and who will do them? Will we have an organized or disorganized home life? What kind of entertainment and vacations? Will they be relaxed vacations or get as much in them as you possibly can? Oftentimes in a marriage there's a talker and someone who's quiet. How are we going to communicate? In conflict, are we going to avoid it? Are we going to pursue it? Are we going to be passive-aggressive? Are we going to be direct? In spiritual areas, who is expected to be the leader? And how is that going to take shape? In terms of work and careers, will he have lots of overtime? Will she work at all? Will he travel in his work? Well, when something goes wrong and doesn't meet our expectations, then we have to resolve that. It's also important, I believe, to identify where our expectations come from. I believe they come from primarily two sources. I'm not sure which is the most domineering, but if I had to guess, I would say our family origin is the greatest place our expectations come. What we saw our parents and grandparents doing, how we were raised is often what we assume our marriage will mirror. But when you marry someone, they didn't come from the same family you came from, did they? So right there you have conflicting or maybe slightly different expectations. But secondly, I think our culture certainly exerts a strong influence on our expectations. Our peers, movies, fictional novels, political beliefs, correctness all have an impact on our expectations. But all expectations are not necessarily bad. We've got to have them or we'll have no drive. The point is we need to be aware of them and address them in reality. I believe there are four profound laws about expectations, and I've alluded to a couple of them, but let me just give them to you concisely. Number one, we all have them, And we have expectations about everything. We get them from books, movies, etc. Secondly, the degree to which reality fails to measure up to our expectations is the degree to which we feel disappointed. Thirdly, repeated disappointment may lead to despair and disgust. And all three of these first three laws are especially at work in a marriage and can lead to divorce whether that's a a formal divorce or an informal separation or living together separately, as I alluded to. Marital expectations often are generally subconscious and often not at least initially verbalized. If you are married, have you found yourself, even after maybe decades of marriage, thinking, I never knew that about them? I never knew that about them. It's, it's been said, if you want to get to know somebody really well, you either marry them or you take a trip with them. Well, if you have to choose between those, take the trip first, because it's easier to get out of that than it is to get out of the marriage. Often, as we enter our teen years or our marriage years, we think the hardest part will be finding the right person. 
And we assume if we find the right person, then we'll have a happy life. But I think rather than finding the right person, probably the most important thing for us is to be the right person. What if you find Mr. or Mrs. Right and you're Mr. and Mrs. Wrong? And even if you are Mr. and Mrs. Right and you find Mr. or Mrs. Wrong, you've got some issues. We expect our mates to do something that God never intended for them to be able to do. And that's make us happy. We often attach ourselves to people who will meet or we think will meet our expectations. This next statement I'm going to give, it, it, it sounds counterintuitive, but I think there's some truth in it. The less you expect marriage to make you happy, the more it will. The less you expect marriage to make you happy, the more it will. And I think at the, at the root of that is that the less we expect our mates to make us happy, the more we can be happy. Not that our mates won't make us happy, I pray that they do. But that's a terrible burden to put on somebody else. There's a phrase that I've learned not to like, and we use it all the time, and I, I will probably use it. We call ourselves human beings. I think that's a poor term. Because being a human being implies that you have become something. I think we ought to call ourselves human becomings. Because we're all growing to become something. And we never complete that growth process here on this earth. I know what we mean when we call ourselves human beings, but I think maybe the phrase human becomings really fits us in a better way. Our partners don't exist to meet all of our emotional needs. They exist to be companions, separate but equal. They become at once our responsibility when we marry them. And yet they're, to a great extent, out of our control. Because they're human becomings. They're self-people. You can strip, when we strip away all the assumptions that they should be different from whom they are, that they are there to meet all of our expectations, we find something beautiful underneath the stripping away all of those assumptions. And that is, they're there to give us help. And that's what we've needed all along. That's why in Genesis chapter 2 verse 18, God says, I'm going to give you a helper. Someone that helps you in your becoming. Marriage will not always make you happy. Despite what our society says, and sometimes despite what the pulpit says. But it will do something even better. It will give you an opportunity to find happiness by letting go and learning what's really important in life. The real work is not about finding the right person, it's about becoming the right person. When I first discussed this with, with a, an individual and they heard about this topic, they made the comment, and I think a couple of them maybe made the comment, that when they got married, they don't recall ever having any expectations. And I thought, that's probably true, but the more I thought about it, that's probably impossible. I think we all have expectations. 
But we may not realize that we have those expectations of another individual, the one that we marry, until we have entered into that relationship. Because marriage is a mixture of social, family, and personal expectations all bundled together. And if, we're, and if it were just of the couple, more manageable. But we have other influences. We have in-laws that have expectations of us. We have peers that have. We have co-workers. We have nosy Christians that have expectations of us. There are simply some people who find comfort in the agony of others. I hope that's not me and I hope it's not you. One of the dangers of a week like this, however, when we discuss a topic like this, I remember uh, reading about a man, he and his wife went to a marriage seminar. I'm not sure this is a marriage seminar, but it's kind of one. He said, we thought we had a good marriage till we went to the seminar and they told us we didn't. Well, that would be kind of a negative building up, wouldn't it? But we can all improve. Of all false expectations, the most flawed expectation is for our spouse to make us completely happy. And that they will fulfill all of our needs. With that expectation, we will almost invariably be disappointed. Because your spouse simply can't do that. If you were here yesterday, and as I gave the invitation, I made the comment that we're all sinners. And you're sitting next to a sinner. And many of you were sitting next to your spouses. I don't know what you thought when I said that. It's biblical. But is he calling my cuddle monkey a, a sinner? Well, I guess I am. Because we're all sinners. And that's why our spouse can't do for us what only Christ is established to do for us. And yet sometimes they expect us and we expect them and the expectations never end. As much as a of a blessing as marriage can be and for many of us is, the only person who can complete our relationship of happiness is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the sooner we get that into our thick skulls, the better we will be and the better our marriages will be. I am not number one in my wife's life. And I am thankful for that. But I hold a higher position in her life because she has Christ as number one. It's an interesting Diagram. When you're number two behind Christ, you can be higher than you would be if Christ wasn't in the picture. Because your spouse reverences and respects you not because of what you are, but because of what they are. And that is so absolutely crucial. When we make Jesus the starting point of our expectations, the burden of marriage lightens. Marriage becomes fun. It may not always make sense. And your spouse may not always make sense to you, but Jesus knows and he works on our heart. If you want to expect anything out of your marriage, build your expectations on God's intervention. Seeking his kingdom first, and what does he say? And all these things shall be added unto you. Stephen Atterburn wrote, A strong marriage takes work. 
But the rewards can be profound and abundant. Abundant, pardon me. Expect constant romance and you will kill it. Just like too much sugar will make you sick. End quote. And I think that's one of the expectations our society tends to place on us through romance novels, movies, or just peers. That it will just be one unending romantic journey. Well, if that's your, the case for you, God bless you. I just don't think that's reality. And I don't think the Lord thinks that is reality. But he goes on and makes a couple of other points. Movies, TV shows, he says, magazines, fictional works have done much to create seriously flawed material expectations. You ever notice how unrealistic those books and movies are? You ever watched a romantic movie and they wake up with dragon breath? It doesn't exist in the movies. Now, I'm not with most of you, but I'm going to guess it exists in most homes. Because we all are the same. All of these unrealistic expectations are a major cause of failed unhappy marriages. They have done studies in which people will say, 70% of them say they believe the purpose of marriage is to find a mate who will make them happy. I believe that is a flawed, immature premise. It may be the one most of us have entered into marriage with, but I think there's a maturity that needs to come after that. Romantic feelings and sexual ecstasy are seen by many as keys. I liked Lewis's comment yesterday when he said, if it's just feelings and emotional, get a Valium. I think he's on to something there. Not that feelings and emotions aren't good, but they're not the solid foundation upon which marriages can be built. Unrealistic expectations are toxic to anything, whether it's your career, whether it's your school, whether it's sports, but especially in a marriage. Now, stable Christian marriages need to have mutual goals, practical living, and a deep commitment to shared values, religion, and morals. But if our marriage cools because of unmet expectations, then the key question we need to ask ourselves, and we each have to do this very privately and introspectively. I don't want to know what you, how you answer this question, and I'm not going to tell you how I answer this question. But if our marriage is cool because of un- unmet expectations, we have to ask ourselves, what did we really fall in love with? I think a lot of people fall in love with being in love. I think a lot of people fall in love with a dream and a fantasy that has no real root in realism. And then when that becomes obvious to them, the relationship suffers. You did not marry a dream. You did not marry a fantasy, no matter how wonderful they are. And some of you, I'm sure, have wonderful mates. I do. But you married a real person. You married a sinner. And they married a sinner. And you two sinners are going to live in a fallen world. Now, how are we going to deal with that in our ecstasy of a biblical marriage? I'm showing my age with this reference, but some of you will remember them and maybe in reruns. You remember the Cleavers? Ward and June and Leave it to Beaver? Ward always came to dinner with a suit and a tie. June always had earrings. Now, I'm sure I just described your home. 
But I didn't describe our home. Donna's lucky if I've got shoes on. But that's okay. It's my home. The Waltons. They always went to bed at the same time and yelled goodnight to everybody. Is that your house? I doubt it. I doubt it. Nothing wrong if you do that. And if you want to say goodnight, John boy, I'll try to respond to you if I hear you. (laughs) But I'm not expecting it. My point is, it's a fantasy. It's not a wrong fantasy, but it's an unrealistic fantasy. And I don't think any of us would really want to live that way. If we did, we would, I guess. Deep mutual affection is, can be, and should be a wonderful thing, but not if it blinds us to reality. Sunday, if you were at the uh, community center, I suspect you had a wonderful meal. Every time I, I wasn't there Sunday, but every time I've been there, it's been a wonderful meal. And you've had a series of meals so far this week. You left cholesterol and calorie thoughts at home. I doubt there's hardly anything green edible in the campground, and if it is, it's probably rotten. There's no Brussels sprouts and green... Well, there might be some green... We put all that aside. We're, we're, We're living in a little fantasy this week. It tastes good. It is good. But it would kill us if we ate like this all the time. I don't see a a healthy menu at the Dairy Shack. I see long lines, but I don't see a healthy menu. And so it is in pre or early marital romance. It's hard to get ourselves or anyone to take an honest look at reality. There's a Jamaican proverb, at least it's, it's, it's attributed to the Jamaicans. When you're dating, you should have both eyes wide open, and when you get married, you ought to close them halfway. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. But we get it backwards. When we're dating, our eyes are half closed, and we couldn't see a flaw in that person if it hit us between the, the eyes. And when we're married, we don't miss a single flaw in the other person. Love is compelling, motivating, but it's also intoxicating. It takes total command of your mind and emotions. You ever tried to talk somebody out of getting married that they're dead set on getting married? Even if you're pretty sure it's not a good deal. I've given up trying to talk people out of getting married. If they're dead set on it, let's make the best of it. I'm not going to be able to talk you out of it. When the hormones are pumping, the mind simply shuts down sometimes. But that reality doesn't last. It does not last. Okay. I've jotted down eight things here, maybe a little bit more from my own observations of myths about marriage and expectations. One myth is that both partners are going to expect the same thing. That both partners are going to have the same view of what a marriage should be. That everything will work out. That our mate, and I've dealt with this quite a bit, our mate will make us happy. That there's only one special person in the world for you. Think about that. 
If there's only one person in the world for you, most of us wouldn't be married because we met our mates by somewhat chance. It seems to me. Sometimes, however, we think that our problems are so serious there is no hope. And that's not true as long as the Lord is with us. Sometimes you'll hear people say, we just can't communicate anymore. Well, you can, you just aren't. Or we don't love each other anymore, so let's stop making each other miserable. Well, that loses sight of the fact that love really is that option of the will and not of the emotions. In practical day-to-day living, money is one of the great marriage killers. So much that we've found the phrase, till debt do us part. I would put money and finances in the top three marriage killers. Self-centeredness, and I'm going to talk quite a bit about that in our love, I think is probably in the top three. Lack of commitment. I'm not sure to where to put family and in-laws because that varies, but family and in-laws can be a real stressor and needs to be dealt with. Okay. I'm going to move along here a little bit and spend the last 10 or 15 minutes of this first session dealing with a few of the practical issues I was asked to deal with because I'm afraid I'll I'll be pontificating and not getting down to some of the nitty gritty. And I will be giving you a chance to pause. I will, oh no, I will give myself a chance to pause and you to comment. Now I'm going to acknowledge a bad habit that I have. And that is I'm going to pause and give you a chance to comment and then I just keep talking. I'm going to try not to do that. So if it's silent for a few seconds, that's fine. I don't want a lot of war stories, but we do have to deal with these things in a... In a in the way I was asked to deal with them. Number one, the expectations of how we're going to handle our finances and our money. Some of you come from families that were very frugal, and we'll call them savers. Some of you came from families that were more spenders. If you had a few hundred dollars in the bank, then let's spend the rest. It's very common for a spender to marry a saver. But you have to have a coming together of of the minds. In our case, I will tell you, I was the saver and Donna, although she's thrifty now, came from a more of a spender background. Now, our family has had many discussions about the difference between frugal and tight. I'm here to tell you I am frugal. Other people are tight. That's the best definition I have of it. Well, I think every family needs some of both. And in our case, Donna has made me more generous and I've made her more frugal. But we didn't enter with those expectations that you may not have. And this can be a serious problem. You may or may not hardly believe this, but I'm telling you it's the truth. I have had more than one phone call of a spouse whose spouse has run up a credit card of forty to $80,000. Now, when you start doing the math, where in the world do you go with that? Just paying the interest is a gulper. That couple didn't come together. When you get married, are you going to have separate bank accounts or joint bank accounts? I could care less. But what I care about is that you come to a meeting of your diverse expectations. It seems to me like the older we are when we get married, 
that's a little harder issue because you're more accustomed to having a separate bank account and there's some autonomy in having that. What are you going to spend your money on? That's going to depend on differing expectations. When do you need to check with one another before you spend? How much can you spend without checking with your mate first? I suspect it's below 4,000. But those are expectations that you enter that are probably different from your spouse's because you came from different environments. And they have to be dealt with. I believe the man is to be the head of the house. I believe the Bible teaches that. And part of that, I believe, means the man should have the overriding oversight of the finances of the house. That may not be a politically correct statement. And the wife may be more skilled in managing the affairs of the finances of the home. But I still think the responsibility for overseeing it in its mega sense, or its larger sense, falls on the man... But I believe the woman has a real opportunity and a need to be involved in that management all the way along because I've seen far too many ladies become widows who didn't even know how to write a check. Had no idea about the finances. Our marriage is not ideal because Donna and I are both sinners. But I will tell you one thing that, that has worked for us. She handles the checkbook because I want her to know if and when I die before she does, and I probably will, I want her to have an idea of what's going on so she's not totally lost. Now, on the bigger decisions, we discuss them or I oversee them. That may not be the way you want to handle it, but you need to have a working relationship, and you need to be prepared so that both spouses are prepared to handle the family finances when the other spouse dies. Because chances are you're not going to die at the same time. That occasionally happens in an accident, but that's rare. I know men that don't know how to write a check. But we have different expectations about money. And that's a very important thing to resolve. I'm going to pause. I can't spend... 20 minutes on each one of these. I'm going to pause and if you have a comment or a question on financial expectations, we'll take a couple of them. If you don't, I'll move on. I know this is, see I just did it. I said I'm pausing and I'm going to keep talking. But this is important. This subject causes you to be a little hesitant to make comments because you're going to think, well, everyone's going to think we have that problem in our marriage. So any comment you make, let's just all assume we're talking about somebody else. Okay? Um, Okay, thank you. Uh, Earlier you had uh, talked about eight myths, and I don't know if you listed all eight or if you're going to list them all later but if if you already did list them can you go through them real quick so we could jot them down the, the things that we're going to deal with uh you had talked about eight myths that we oh, have miss yeah yeah i did i sure must have done a great job <laughs> 
I probably went over them too fast for you to get them written down to be serious. Here we go. I had listed myth one is that we expect the same thing out of marriage. Myth two, we have the same view of marriage. Myth three, everything will work out once we get married. Myth four, marriage or my mate will make me happy. Myth five, there is only one, there is one special person in the world for me. What's that? Five, six, our problems are so serious there is no hope. Uh, Seven, we can't communicate. I just think that means we don't communicate. And number eight, we don't love each other anymore, so let's quit making each other miserable. Thank you for caring enough to want to have them. Tom Amos, Murray Road. Yes. This doesn't pertain to finances, but a couple other things you you, you touched upon. Um, I was raised uh, by a single mother. Um, they were divorced when I was four. So um, you talked about our origins, how our expectations are really met by our origins. So I often felt lacking as far as not having a role model um, to know how to act, I guess, or how to be a husband or, or father. Sure. Um, Probably more on the father's side, uh, you know, I really felt lacking um, or wanting in there. And we never know what mistakes we make or how to raise kids. And, and but, you, but you also talked about family and how those can cause. Very fortunate to have the grandfather that Jim was such a wonderful granddad. And uh, he took the kids and he just loves kids. So um, it can be a very positive um support channel too along the same thing when you're when you talk about family and stuff yeah so. I, go ahead are you done yes I'm okay done. i didn't want to jump in i'm not implying you need to be done uh that's an excellent comment because we have many people here that didn't come from the traditional family a mother father original mother and father in most grade schools today over half of the kids don't live with their original parents anymore But I think uh, a couple of things as you were talking, Thomas, even if you were raised in a traditional family with a godly mom and a godly dad, you still don't know how to raise kids. Uh, You you have to learn that to somewhat because your kids are different than their kids were. But there are role models, and you're fortunate to have, and that's part of the extended church family. My boys were raised with calling a lot of people aunt and uncle that weren't physically related to them. And those people taught those boys lessons that I couldn't. I could say the same thing, but coming from dad, it's different than coming from someone that's not dad. So that's a wonderful extended family that we can do here for one another. Mike? Back on the issue of finances. Yes, sir. Uh, often the most important thing, or one of the most important things, is to be sure how we handle debt. And... Uh, we are now retired, but we are also in a position where we're assisting other people who are retired. And it should be a goal, if you plan on retiring, be sure you are debt-free by the time you get retired. The house needs to be paid for, the cars need to be paid for, no long-term debt. That really should be a goal most of the time, but with house prices and automobile prices, it's hard sometimes not to have some debt. But manage your debt very carefully and 
make a goal to be debt free by senior age. Okay, if I could comment on that, and well, I guess I can. Uh, I think that is a very good comment, and it is certainly the safest comment. Having said that, with all Christian love, I don't totally agree with that comment, but I have to be careful how I express that. If you are not a good money manager, everything Mike said is absolutely true. I think there can be cases where you are a good money manager, and it makes more sense to keep a 35 or 4% mortgage when you can make 7 or 8% in another investment. But having said that, we all tend to think we're better money managers than we are, so we can get ourselves in trouble. So be very, very cautious uh, about that. And uh, But, uh, you know, the Dave Ramsey approach to it, you're not going to go... You're not going to go bankrupt with that approach, and you can't go bankrupt by not by not having some debt. Rachel, I was very fortunate when we were going through marriage counseling that my mother is a banker by trade, um, so I think I got you know the four one one and with a lot more detail. But I appreciated that when we did do marriage counseling that the that the planning for finances was a huge part of that. Um, because I think front-loading and thinking about all of those things ahead of time can really help, you know, avoid a lot of problems. Sure. And in your particular family case, and I, I'm somewhat familiar with your parents, your mom is probably quite skilled in, in finance. That doesn't mean your dad isn't, but if she has that talent, you, you'd probably want to tap it. You'd want to utilize it in some way, but I suspect they both knew what was going on. I'd be shocked if, I don't want you to answer that, but I'd be shocked if that weren't the case. Uh, and some people just have an affinity. I enjoy that. Some people don't enjoy that, and that's that's fine, but you still got to step up to the plate. Uh, we got a couple of minutes, so let's go ahead and take another one or two. Just a brief comment. I feel like one of Satan's strongest tactics today is to make us feel like if we have more money, it won't be a problem. That, that was that was brief, uh, but that was right to the point. Yeah, but money, it ought to be a blessing, but it's so often a curse. And it's because we, I think money causes us oftentimes to think, to put our trust in it rather than in the Lord. And we're told that in scripture. Rich people can be saved, but it is a temptation. There's no question about it. Uh, and if you are a saver, if you are an investor, I think we need to remind ourselves as frugal people, uh, how can we use that to serve the Lord? As opposed to maybe, how much can I give my kids? Uh, I was once told, if you really love your kids, uh, don't give them stuff. Teach them how to give. If you teach your children how to give, they'll never want. If you teach them only to cherry stuff, they'll never have. And I think there's some wisdom to that. Uh, and we are in a very affluent society. All of us are affluent by the world's standards. And with that comes great responsibility. we got time for one more, one or two more before the break, if you have one. If not, I'm happy with the break. And I know this is like in grade school when the teacher says it's recess time and then someone raises their hand and you go, ah, I could be playing basketball. 
Well, we got one over here. I didn't mean to put you in a bad spot. Oh, you're good. Hey, guys. Uh, so something comes to mind um, that my wife and I have experienced is in Genesis 2.24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. If that's what we're supposed to le- uh, view our spouse as, then how could we not view our finances as one? One income. Okay. You make this over here. I make this over there. How is it not our money? And if you view your work as um, providing for this and their work for providing for something else, I think that can cause some division. I, I'll just say amen to that. I, I think that's a- absolutely absolutely true and that first you you quoted there from genesis chapter 2 i think that has implications when we get into our discussion about in-laws mm. uh leaving oh, father def- and mother and cleaving that's been a discussion <laughs> yeah so, sometimes people have a 400 foot umbilical cord that they never yeah. break yeah <laughs> um one other thought is you know what my wife and i definitely have been fortunate to have the viewpoint of less debt is better but in looking at your finances, find somebody around you that does a better job than you do. Even if you do well, find somebody around you that does a better job and talk to them about that. Um, you know, the generation before mine, like my parents, talking about finances is not open. Um, my dad encouraged low debt, which has helped set us up. Um, and we've been very fortunate about that. But just be open about it. It's just a thing. It doesn't have to be closed off. Sure, and there's different kinds of debt, in my opinion. A house mortgage is one thing. Uh, a, a debt to buy a Porsche or to go to Europe three times a year, that's just kind of frivolous. If you can afford it, go. I don't, that's, that's not a sin. But one's an investment, and the other is uh, maybe a little bit more risky. Okay, everyone's ready for recess. You have a break.